Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish, a collection of Michael's favorite interviews with authors from the last 30 years through today, on the air, on radio. What sets my book club apart is that I actually read the books. Book Club is now in session. Freakonomics, a smash new book by University of Chicago professor named Stephen Levitt, a man with whom I spent some time in Chicago over the weekend. This book, number three right now at Amazon, it'll debut on the New York Times bestsellers list next Sunday in the number five position, about to take the nation by storm. Meet now Professor Stephen Levitt. Professor, first of all, thank you. People love this, and I love it. I'm so glad I got turned on to your book. Are you surprised that the book has popped so quickly? Uh, We're flabbergasted. I mean, you know, we like your book. We thought it was pretty good, but, you know, we're pretty much nobodies if you think about it. You know, nobody knows who we are. It's, It's amazing that somehow people have managed to find their way to our book so quickly. Uh, and to what do you attribute that? Was it the Wall Street Journal that just made the thing go, uh, is it bloggers? I mean, wh- wh- how, where and how? Because you haven't been on television. Yeah, we've had no TV appearances. I mean, we got this Wall Street Journal review, which was one of the most fantastic reviews you could ever get. I mean, it was just, you, you couldn't have paid enough money to get a review like the one we got. And uh, and it just, that had an amazing impla- impact. And the, the other thing, you know, I think the bloggers, so we... We took a strategy of just saying we'd send our book out to, to bloggers and let them 
let them talk about it if they liked it, you know, or they hated it. You know, we had no control. We just said, let's put it in the hands of people who are our chatterers and see what they say. And, and you know, by and large, they've been, been pretty positive towards it, and I think that created some real momentum for you're, us. You're a 37-year-old guy. You teach economics at the University of Chicago, and you receive the John Bates Clark Medal, which is awarded every two years to the best American economist under 40. Yep, that's how true. Uh, and you are interested in some wacky stuff. Yeah, I, I pretty much follow my nose wherever it will take me. So whether it's sumo wrestlers or cheating teachers or crack-selling gangs or legalized abortion, I, I pretty much... You know, I, I just, uh, anything that I find interesting, I'm willing to take a crack at it. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Time for a Freakonomics lesson from the University of Chicago, Stephen Levitt. Great to be here. It used to be that folks all named their kids with the same names. In other words, that there were not great differences between culture in the United States. But you point out that since the early 1970s, uh, things have changed. How so? Well, especially between African Americans and whites, there's been an enormous divergence in the choices of names. As you said, uh, if you go back to the 60s, uh, African Americans and whites were pretty much choosing similar types of names. So if you take just the, the typical uh, black girl, and the name she was giving was a name given was about twice as likely to be given to a black girl as to a white girl. Okay. Then you go fast forward five years to 1973. And suddenly the typical black girl was getting a name that was 25 times as likely to be given to, to a black girl as to a white girl. And, uh, and since that time, it's really the, 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 the differences have, have stayed constant. There's been enormous differences, you know, almost you know, very little overlap in the, in the choice of names uh, between African-Americans and whites. In the Here's a stat from your own book, and you base this on data that you received from uh, the great state of California. More than 40% of the black girls born in California in a given year receive a name that not one of the roughly 100,000 baby white girls received that year. That's so, absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, and, and just as striking, something like 30% of all black girls are given names that are unique to them among all of the girls born in California. No, meaning nobody else has that name. That is correct. In that uh, year in California, no Fascinating. All right. For example, the 20, well, the, I'll just give uh, a couple. The whitest girl names, Molly, Amy, Claire, Emily. The blackest girl names, Imani, Ebony, Shanice, Aliyah. Uh, the whitest boy names, I'm just giving you the top four, Jake, Connor, Tanner, and Wyatt, and the 20 blackest boy names, Deshaun, DeAndre, Marquis, and Darnell. All right, now that we've got the, the sort of, the, we've established the proposition that kids are naming their, their children in, in different ways, does it matter if you have a very white name or a very black name later in life? So our, our results, which we come to by comparing two kids, who are born in California into as close as we can say identical circumstances. So the same hospital, the parents are the same age, the marriage, same race, uh, you know, everything we can link up about, about the kids. And then we fast forward again until we can see the birth certificate when a mother gives birth. So we link birth certificates from when you're born to when you give birth. So 20 years passes, 25 years passes. And we can see the information about the birth certificate, about what sort of life uh, the mother has lived, um, you know, how old she is when she gives birth, what kind of neighborhood she lives in, the hospital, whether she's on welfare, etc. 
And the answer is that your name appears to have zero effect on your life outcomes. It just does not matter what your name is. Well, you say that, but doesn't the data show on average that a person with a distinctively black name, whether it's a woman named Imani or a man named Deshaun, does have a worse life outcome, economically speaking, than a woman named, you know, Molly or a boy named Jake? Right. So that is correct. So that is true. That is true. That uh, in general, so for in general, we we see that, for instance, incomes of blacks and whites are lower than incomes of whites in this country. Uh, and even among blacks, if you compare the incomes of those who have, you know, these unique names or, to, or very distinctively black names, their incomes are lower than the the name uh, the in, of other blacks who are taking more traditional names. Okay, but it's not a causal relationship. In, all right. In other words, it's not like a discrimination thing. Like, hey, I'm not going to hire Deshaun. Well, it, you know, it could be discrimination, but I think that employees who are discriminatory are not discriminating against black names. They're discriminating against blacks, right? So you may not get a call, you know, you may not get an interview if you send in a resume and you have a distinctively black name. But let's face it, the reason the employer, if they're discriminatory, didn't want to hire you is because you're black. So if you show up at the interview with a, with a traditional white name like Emily, it's probably not going to change the employer's opinion anyway. If they didn't want to hire someone who's black, you just ended ended up wasting half a day off of your job to go get an interview at another company that had no interest in employing you in the first place. All right, let, let's talk briefly about some of the, the low-income names and what they mean. The most common low-income white girl names, Ashley, Jessica, Amanda, Samantha, Brittany. I mean, I found it fascinating that the, the lower-income families in having a daughter are naming her Brittany. Now, I guess somebody's going to say, well, it's because of Brittany Spears, but the most common low-end white boy names, Cody, Brandon, and all of a sudden, Professor Levitt, I say to myself, well, wait a minute, I think I know what's going on here, and you're, not, you're the expert. If a low-income family is, is naming their... It's, it's almost like Jackie Mason does this great bit. You like Jackie Mason, by the way? I might be a little too young for Jackie Mason. All right. How old are you, by the way? I'm 37. Unbelievable. 37. As, 20, as Neil Young said, 24, and there's so much more. Jackie Mason has this great skit that he does uh, where he says, you know, a family names their kid Tiffany Schwartz. You know what I mean? Everybody through that naming is, is, is trying to become something else. If a low-income white girl is being named Brittany or a low-income white boy is named Brandon, what does that represent, if anything? Well, you know, on Brittany... Uh, a lot of people tend to attribute naming to celebrities, but it, it, it typically is not the case. So, so Brittany is, in fact, she's a she's a symptom, not a cause of the. You know, we show how there's you know 17 different ways you can spell Brittany as well. But but basically, Brittany Spears was named already when Brittany had become a, a, a popular, low income, low education kind of name. And in fact, the name has become much less popular over time. Uh, not grown in popularity, as you might think. And also with Shirley Temple, there's a, a myth that Shirley Temple spawned, you know, a generation of Shirleys, but it's actually the opposite, that it was, there were so many Shirleys around when Shirley Temple was born, and she was a star by the age of five, that people got the causality confused. But I think what names are really about, so I don't think names are about affecting your child's life. I think names are about sending a message to your friends that you're the right kind of person that, that they're going to want to hang out with. And well, so, have you, all right, let me ask it differently. Have you seen a trend where names that are uh, being given to, you know, the rich white kids sort of work their way down the socioeconomic ladder? 
Yeah, so that's absolutely right. So, All right, that's so what names, I was getting okay. at with Brandon and Brittany. Yeah, so names start, you know, so, so the pioneers when it comes to new names are high education people. So the names that, you know, Madison, for instance, right. that, that came in. <laughs> right. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. education people, right. and eventually it becomes popular, and it and filters its way down until it becomes a, a, a name for the hoi polloi, and then... Uh, and then everybody jumps off it, and we wait a couple generations. We start over again with that. Right, same because name. because what happens is that 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 those those you know those so-called well-to-do folks who who come up with Madison as a name, once th- their space becomes invaded by Madison being assigned to people on a different end of the socioeconomic ladder, they don't want Madison anymore. Right. That, that's exactly right. All well, right, we, it totally makes sense. I get it. I'm not so, for it, but I understand it. What we found is that for every high education person who gives their baby a particular name, uh, within 10 years, there are five lower education parents who will pick that same name. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, it really multiplies through the, through, the, uh, through the naming space. What a great lesson in Freakonomics with Professor Stephen Levitt. Professor, thank you. Thank you. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash smirconish, netsuite.com slash smirconish, netsuite.com slash smirconish. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. Let's talk about uh, what the bagel man saw. Mankind may be more honest than we think. Who is the bagel man? So the bagel man is an economist trained at MIT uh, with Paul Samuelson, one of the great economists of of the of the uh, of the century who worked for 20 years as an economist before he became so uh, disenchanted. He decided his time would be better spent. Uh, delivering bagels and donuts to office parks in the morning along with a lockbox and having people pay on the honor system. And, and that's because when he was working as an economist, as a courtesy, he would bring bagels. Exactly. So he brought bagels for his own workers. People liked it so much that they, uh, you know, they demanded on every floor of the building he bring bagels. He, he saw it was an opportunity to make some money. Yeah, I love the story because I think that every office and people driving to work in Philadelphia today or South Jersey or Delaware, wherever they might, there's always somebody in the office who's the donut person. And, and this fella, uh, Paul Feldman, was the bagel guy and decided then to pursue it as a career. He did, and, and he was very successful. Indeed, he was making more money delivering bagels than he was as a senior economist. You said he was delivering 8,400 bagels a week to 140 companies. That's correct. <laughs> so he'd go out, he'd drop off the bagels with the honor box, and you say, uh, Professor Levitt, there's a great deal to be learned about white-collar crime from his experience. How so? Well, you know, we know almost nothing about white-collar crime, and the reason is because it's hard to measure. The only people who we know who, who we catch stealing or committing fraud are the ones we catch. We don't catch the ones who don't do it. And... Basically, Paul Feldman gave us a way to keep score. So we could see every day, uh, this is really like white-collar crime writ small, that someone would show up, they'd either pay for the bagel or not, and there was a victim. Paul Feldman was a victim. He knew whether he was being paid or not. And that's, you know, a a microcosm of white-collar crime. Yeah, I thought there were no victims in white-collar crime. Maybe I'm thinking of prostitution. (laughs) Maybe that is white-collar crime. Uh, when he started this business, what did he expect his uh, his payment rate to be? Because if you have an honor box, I mean, presumably you don't think you're getting a hundred percent. Yeah, when he had done it at his company where he worked, he was getting about ninety five percent, and he had initially attributed the the, the lack of payment that five percent that was missing to oversight or mistakes. He realized though that when he went out, when he was a little more anonymous, that uh, his payment rates were lower, about you know about ninety percent, but still pretty darn good if you think about it. So what what conclusions can be reached? I mean, what experiences did he have? For example, uh, big outfit versus small outfit. Was there a disparity between the... It's really cheating that we're talking about. Exactly. Was, was there a disparity between the level of cheating that the bagel man would see in these different uh, uh, companies where he delivered the bagels, the 140 different companies? Right. So he found that the bigger the office he delivered to, the smaller his payment rate. 
uh, he found very interesting things about holidays. So it turned out, or I should say we found in some sense, uh, we're using his data and analyzing his data, that around the holidays, like Christmas and Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, the kind of holidays where there are certain expectations that to come with them, the cheating rates actually went up rather than went down, uh, which is surprising. So, so, much you... for the, <laughs> so much for the holiday spirit. Um, and he also found uh, that when, after the 9-11 attacks, he, uh, he saw the payment rate jump uh, quite significantly. And, uh, and I think that tells us something about that, uh, you know, People aren't people aren't stealing. You know, people aren't deterred from stealing because they think they're going to get caught. I don't think it. I think it's some kind of moral code. Uh, it's an internal incentive rather than some sort of external incentive not to cheat. And I think that 9/11 galvanized people in, in in a way that changed our feelings about about right and wrong. Professor Stephen Levitt from the University of Chicago, author of Freakonomics, giving us a Freakonomics lesson. We're talking about uh, Paul Feldman, the bagel man, and what can be gleaned from his experience. So the bigger the company where he would deliver the bagels with the honor box, the more the thievery, which, by the way, is like the mentality that says it's okay to shoplift from Macy's because look how big they are. They'll never miss it. They can afford it. Yeah, it's like that. It's also like in general in crime that we see a lot more crime in the anonymity of cities than we do in in rural areas where people know their neighbors and and have expectations about how people will. But during will during the holidays, when you would think this feeling of you know benevolence and goodwill toward man, Hanukkah, Christmas sort of thing, there would be more stealing. Yeah, you know, I that surprised me, and it's pure conjecture. But you know, one ex, one explanation is that uh, it's just a stressful time and people are feeling short on money and pressed and, uh, and they're, they're more willing to, to, to steal in that circumstance. And yet in the aftermath of 9-11, again, a feeling of goodwill toward man, the, the, the thievery lessened. Yeah, that's correct. And it also turns out when the weather's good, there's less stealing than, than there is when the weather's bad as well. So the sunnier the day, the less the odds for stealing. Exactly. And and you would you would you go so far, Professor Levitt, as to say that you know to someone listening to us right now running a white collar business, they should keep these things in mind as as they keep an eye on their employees. Well, uh, you know, if you could control the weather, you know, you might want to try to respond to it. But I, I I don't know. I mean, I think I think when you're running a business, uh, the best way to keep your employees from stealing from you is is. Maybe the lesson comes more from the 9-11 attack. So the best way to keep your employees from stealing from you is to make sure they feel like they're part of a team, that there's something that, that, uh, that they're not being exploited. And uh, you can never, you know, if you try and set up a police state at your company, it's probably not going to be good for profit either, I wouldn't think. All right. You're the eternal optimist out there in Chicago. Me, I'm a guy from Philly, and I say if you have a big outfit, it's raining outside, and it's close to a holiday, look out. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Stephen Levitt, thanks for another lesson in Freakonomics. Okay, you're welcome. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM. In today's Freakonomics lecture, probably the most controversial component of the book of all. Ready for this? Abortion fights crime. You heard me correctly. Abortion. The best explanation for the drop in crime experienced across the country in the 1990s. Don't believe me? Well, get ready for today's lesson in Freakonomics. 
Where have all the criminals gone? We all know that in the 1990s, there was this precipitous drop in crime. I bought into the conventional explanation, which was one of, you know, comp stat and innovative policing strategies. And Rudy Giuliani and his police commissioner, Bratton, are the guys most often credited with uh, that turnaround. As a matter of fact, here in Philadelphia, we all said, well, it's John Timothy. He's a great policeman. That's why crime has dropped. But Professor Levitt, as is his custom, refuses to just sort of buy into the party line and decided to study this issue. Professor Levitt, welcome back to The Big Talker. Thanks. It's great to be here. You you uh, you did a LexisNexis database search of a decade to find out the most often cited explanation for the drop in crime that we were then experiencing, and, and you found what as the typical explanations? Yeah, so the typical explanations were just, as you said, innovative policing strategies. Often uh, people talked about the economy, uh, sometimes adding more police, gun control, a whole, a whole, a whole host of, of different explanations. But nowhere on the list of the conventional explanations was the one that, that you came to, correct? No. So my theory, which uh, I must say is controversial, not everyone agrees with me, uh, is that the biggest reason why crime fell in the 1990s was the legalization of abortion in the 1970s. Abortion being legalized dropped the crime rate. Absolutely. All right. Abortion became legal after Roe v. Wade in 1973. Before abortion became the law of the land in 73, it was legal in varying degrees in five states, correct? That's correct. So uh, New York, California, Washington State, Alaska and Hawaii uh, had around 1970 legalized abortion. Why would legalization of abortion in the 70s impact crime in the 90s? The story is actually really simple. The story is that uh, when you legalize abortion, the number of unwanted children falls, almost by definition. I think that's kind of, it's, it's, you know, by definition, it's a, a fetus that's aborted is likely to have turned into an unwanted child. And there's 50 years of social scientific research that shows that unwanted children are at great risk for being exposed to crime. That if, you're, if your mother, the, you know, becoming criminals, that if your mother doesn't love you in the old B.B. King uh, you know the big old BB King song. It's uh, it's bad news for you when you when you're uh, when you're growing up. So you put those two together: legalized abortion, less unwanted children. Unwanted children tend to do crime, and it stands to reason that when that generation of kids that had been exposed to legalized abortion in utero hits their peak crime ages 15 to 20 years later, you'd expect crime to be lower. As you say in the book, what sort of woman was most likely to take advantage of Roe v. Wade? Very often she was unmarried or in her teens or poor, and sometimes all three. What sort of future might her child have had? One study has shown that the typical child who went unborn in the earliest years of legalized abortion would have been 50% more likely than average to live in poverty. He would also have been 60% more likely to grow up with just one parent. These two factors childhood poverty and single-parent households are among the strongest predictors that a child will have a criminal future. So that's really it. And frankly, it's not so much a comment on abortion, because that's the way I know people are going to want to characterize what you're saying. It's really a comment on parenting, said differently, and and the importance of of the strength of an intact family. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, that our findings are really have nothing to say about the abortion debate. You know, should should abortion be legal, illegal, is it right or wrong? That's not what this is about. This is about describing the impact that abortion had on, on crime. And, and I think as divisive as the abortion issue is, something we can all agree upon is that unwanted kids 
have tough lives, and, and, and we should be doing everything we can to, to make kids loved and wanted. And abortion is probably about the, the least attractive way of doing that. Not conceiving in the first place is certainly preferable. I think everyone agrees. And also stepping in and helping parents do a better job, uh, adoption. There, there are all sorts of ways that I think from everyone on, on the political spectrum can agree that we should be helping kids have a fair shot at a good life. Professor Stephen Levitt, uh, author of Freakonomics, Taking the Nation by Storm, discussing with us probably the most controversial of the uh, of the chapters of his book, That Which Finds That Abortion Reduces Crime. Now, let me test your hypothesis. If what you're saying is accurate, uh, that there's a correlation between legalized abortion and a decrease in crime, then in those five states where abortion was legal before Roe v. Wade, one would expect to find a decrease in crime as compared to all the other 45 states before it becomes the law of the land. Do you follow my question? Absolutely. All right, what's the finding? Yeah, that's that's exactly what you see in the data, that you see crime falling sooner. In fact, you see property crime starts falling even earlier than violent crime in those states, which makes sense because property crime is done by younger individuals, typically than violent crime. And I think even more compellingly, if you look right after the legalization of abortion in the early 70s, there were enormous differences in the access to, to abortion in different places. Uh, North Dakota, I think, and Louisiana maybe had zero abortions uh, in 1973 and 1974 because there was no place to, to have an abortion done. Other states like New York and Pennsylvania had, had a lot of abortion. And if you look over the next 10 or 15 years, the crime patterns in those high abortion states and the low abortion states, they're identical. Okay? In, in, in other words, the greater uh, the greater the abortion rate the more the reduction in crime. But, but not for the first 15 years after the law passed, because for the first 15 years, those kids aren't old enough to be doing any crime. So for 15 years, you see North Dakota and Louisiana, their crime patterns are just like Pennsylvania and New York. It's only 15 to 20 to 25 years later that you suddenly see this enormous divergence uh, between crime rates, and that's at exactly the time when the young kids, uh, you know, when the, when the kids have gotten old enough to really be in their peak crime years. And you can even see if you look at arrest data, you know, just in the years before and after legalized abortion at the arrest rates, and you can see big jumps that come right, right, uh, right at, the, uh, at the time when Roe v. Wade got... Yeah, in uh, other words, a birth, a birth that would have occurred in 1974 or 1975, but for the legalization of abortion would have produced a child that would have grown up and reached their, their criminal peak in the 1990s, meaning their late teenage years in the 90s. Exactly. And so that's why you don't see any effect it's, it's of hard to argue. It, for 10 or 15 years, only with this big lag. It is hard to argue with the, the simplicity of that logic. Quick question. Are you getting a workout because of, of this finding in your book? Because I mentioned it on the radio last week and discussed it just having read your book without having you present, and people went crazy. You know, people do go crazy, but it's one of these issues where if I can slow people down enough and say, hey, just give me 30 seconds, and let's actually think about the issue and think about what I'm saying, pretty much everyone can agree that the hypothesis makes sense. There's nothing crazy about the hypothesis. Now, it's unpleasant. It feels like somebody's, like, taking their fist and, like, slamming it into your stomach. Uh, You know, and no one likes to think about abortion these ways. But I think that the thing that makes the... the, the, um, discussion controversial is that people just aren't used to thinking of abortion, you know, they used to think about the morality of it right. rather than the economics of it. And um, You're not passing judgment. You're a numbers cruncher extraordinaire. 
Yeah, you know, know, in in my own feeling, I'm I'm actually ambivalent about abortion. Many people suspect from the study that I'm very much pro-choice, but, you know, actually having done the study, moving from being kind of an unthinking pro-choice person to someone who's pretty confused. I, I can see all sides of this issue at this point. Stephen Levitt, thank you for a fascinating lesson on Freakonomics. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad to be here. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. Part four of our five-part series in Freakonomics with Stephen Levitt, author of the best-selling book by the same name. Today we're focused on cheating everybody from sumo wrestlers to public school teachers. I would never have believed that school teachers and sumo wrestlers had something in common, but they do, according to you. What's the commonality? The commonality is they cheat, just like uh, just about everybody else, if you put them in the right circumstance. Let's talk specifics with regard to cheating teachers. I guess it's the University of Chicago School District, and this comes in the context uh, of No Child Left Behind. Walk us through what, what took place. Yeah, so it's actually the, the entire city of Chicago, uh, the, the whole school district district, the third biggest school district in the country, and uh, they went from a setting where test scores didn't really matter very much, these are elementary school children, I should emphasize, to where test scores started to matter, both as part of a a drive within the district to to get test scores up and also the no child left behind. And we, in partnership with the school district, were able to get the the, the answers that every student gave to these tests over a six or seven year period, hundreds of thousands of tests and millions of questions. And, uh, and we poured over them, tried to come up with algorithms for trying to detect teacher cheating. When I say teacher cheating, I don't mean, uh, you know, teaching to the test or giving a little extra time. We're talking about actually going into the test sheet, erasing the answers, you know, putting in blocks of correct answers to try to physically and directly raise the test scores. And, and what we found was that uh, it looked like in about 5% of the classrooms, it looked like there was evidence of this sort of cheating going on. Now, I I am envisioning, and as I read this, I I envisioned, you know, and I don't even know if they still use this, those old 3M cards where we would color in the the bubbles with the number two pencils? Yep, exactly. And so what you're saying is that the evidence suggests that the teachers that you analyzed here uh, would fill in the bubbles for a series of questions for a number of their students so that their students would be better performing than left to their own devices. That's exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. For for example, uh, a sequence, uh, you know, uh, D-A-D-B-C-B, you saw repeated in a block of particular answers, and you said to yourself, hey, odds are these kids didn't get it all correct. Exactly. So we used math and statistics to try to figure out just how unlikely it would be that those kind of blocks would appear. And also we used more subtle tools. It turns out the single best indicator of cheating in these classrooms is uh, the classrooms where the students are getting the easy questions wrong and the hard questions right. Now, when you found that a teacher was likely to be putting in the correct answers for, like, how many was it, six straight questions? Yeah, for instance. You you found that in question number seven, they were doing what? Uh, Getting the wrong answer? Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah, so some of these blocks of answers, a lot of the blocks of answers actually had wrong answers mixed in. And so my co-author and I debate whether... uh, whether the answers were wrong because the uh, teachers were acting strategically. You might say, well, you know, if I get hauled into the principal's office and I've got a block of five correct answers, but I say mix in the middle, I mix in an incorrect one, I can defend myself by saying I wouldn't be stupid enough to change the answer to a wrong answer. 
But on the other hand, you might say, and this is what my, my co-author, who was a teacher himself uh, uh, on the initial academic study, the co-author, he says, well, you don't know the people I was working with. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of the teachers just don't know the right answers, and that's, and that's part of what's going on with these. Professor Levitt's analysis of the entire Chicago uh, school system data revealed evidence of teacher cheating in more than 200 classrooms per year, roughly 5% of the total. Uh, how did you prove it? Was there a retest? Uh, yeah, well, what's amazing is that the head of the Chicago schools, uh, Arnie Duncan, who you might have thought his reaction to our study would be to you know, close rank and to, to denounce it as being idiotic and wrong, his reaction was the opposite. He said, I don't want cheating in my schools. I'm going to uh, I'm going to invite you in. You can retest 120 classrooms, pick the classrooms. I want to know who's cheating. And so we had the incredible opportunity to actually do what's essentially like a randomized study, which you never get to do in the social sciences. And it turned out that that this this retest exactly proved our point. The classrooms that we had predicted ahead of time we thought were cheating went from being some of the best classrooms in the entire school district to being on average below below the typical classroom. And the classrooms who we thought were actually doing a good job and hadn't been cheating, they kept their test scores exactly where they were. All right. Test. Now, where in the world do the sumo wrestlers come into all of this? Well, so sumo wrestlers provide a <laughs> hence, way... Hence, and by the way, hence the title of the book, Freakonomics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go ahead. So I've been wanting to study corruption and cheating for, for a decade, but it turns out that it's just not easy to tackle the hard questions of corruption. You know, like like government contracts or in third-world countries where corruption is going on. And the reason is because people are busy covering their trail. You know, people who are cheating and corrupt are doing everything they can to make sure they're not getting caught. So a reasonable person would probably throw up his hands and say, well, you know, I, you know, I can't make any headway on this problem. Let me do something else. But my view was, well, if I can't answer the question I want to answer, let me answer a similar question even if nobody cares about it. And so that was sumo wrestling. So the idea was in sumo wrestling, uh, in let me just give you 30 seconds of background on sumo sure. wrestling. Just to yeah, I mean, that. one of the most honored of professions, right, oh. for the Japanese. Oh, it's like the national sport of Japan. It's, right. it's not like professional wrestling here. It's more like the World Series or the NBA. It is the, the national sport of Japan. The emperor comes and sits and watches the matches. It's, you know, all about ritual and honor. Okay. So the way they run these tournaments, each wrestler uh, has 15 bouts as part of a tournament. Uh, one a day for 15 days. And the better they do, the higher they go up in the rankings. They have a very important ranking system that determines everything from salary to who gets to eat, win, everything else. Okay, And, and so uh, it turns out that each extra win that you get in a tournament is worth about um, three spots on the ranking. You know, moves you up from 72nd to 69, except the eighth win, because the eighth win gives you a winning record, and that's supposed to be full of honor to win eight and, and lose seven as opposed to win seven and lose eight. It's got a name called Kachikoshi in, in Japanese. And that win is worth about 12 spots in the rankings. And so on that last day, when you've got seven wins, you really want to get that eighth win. And you want to get that eighth win a lot more than another wrestler who, say, already has eight wins, want to get his ninth win, or a wrestler who has five wins, want to get six wins. And it turns out that, that indeed, the wrestlers who need that eighth win once you have the very strong incentive, they do win much more than you'd expect. Well, that's because, let me play devil's advocate, yep. because they, they need that prize that you've just articulated. Absolutely. So how do you tell the difference between effort and cheating? As W.C. Fields once said, anything worth winning is worth cheating for, but how do I know that the opposite is not true? Anything worth cheating for is worth just trying hard for. And, uh, and so what we, what we show is a couple of things. The first one is 
that let's say you and I, Michael, we wrestle, and I need a win and I get it. It turns out the next time that we wrestle, you win far more than you should. So it's like there's a quid pro quo going on, that you let me win today, and I turn around and I let you win. Is that what you're saying? Are are you saying that in Japan, in the most honored profession, sumo wrestling, when you have a a wrestler who's 7-7 and going up against a wrestler who's 8-6, and that the eight and six guy is is cutting them a break, and that they've got a deal. Hey, I'm going to let you win this one, so you can you can advance as you earlier described. Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Have Have any of the sumo wrestlers, when confronted with this, confessed? Well, you know, there have been uh, some whistleblowers, some former sumo wrestlers, who have complained about this. Now, two of them were actually uh, just about to go public when they had lunch, and uh, both died later that night of of symptoms consistent with strychnine poisoning. So, so there is some history of people wanting to talk about sumo wrestling. Now, the one guy who came public and named names, he, he, he pegged a bunch of sumo wrestlers as being cheaters and a bunch as being honest. We can go back to our data and show that he was exactly right, that this guy knew who would cheat and who wouldn't. The guys who would cheat had these patterns like we're talking about in spades. The guys who he said were in, uncorruptible, when you go back and look at the data, it's exactly the case that they win 50% of their matches when they really need the eighth win, and they lose 50% when their opponent needs Incredible. Sumo wrestlers and Chicago public school teachers. Another lesson in Freakonomics. Thanks, Professor Levitt. Thank you. This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 
at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash Smirconish, netsuite.com slash Smirconish, netsuite.com slash Smirconish. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app. I've got to get into a discussion of, of what the KKK has in common with real estate agents, given that my wife is a real estate broker of some renown. Professor Levitt, welcome back to the great city of Philadelphia. Thanks. It's great to be here. You talk in the book about the history of the KKK and how the KKK becomes a villain in Superman. you, you got to give the thumbnail of that and what the relevance is to the lesson you're about to share with us. Absolutely. So there was a man, Stetson Kennedy, uh, really a true American hero in my eyes. Uh, he's, uh, he must be 90 years old. I had the privilege of going down to, to the swamplands of Florida to, to spend a day with him to talk about his, uh, his exploits. But after World War II... He, uh, he penetrated, he infiltrated the, the, the KKK, uh, and he was really against hatred, and he was trying to do everything he could to, to shut them down. He was filing lawsuits, he was working with the attorney general, he was working with the unions. Nothing was working. Uh, he just couldn't make any headway. The KKK was growing leaps and bounds. They were doing these enormous cross-burnings on Stone Mountain. Uh, Li- finally, lynchings? I mean, li- uh, uh, 1,100 lynchings in, uh, in the, de- the decade of 1890? Yeah, so not all of those would be KKK. So we, we, we do list lynching, some of those KKK, but, but also just the, the spirit of hatred that was uh, even even more broad than the, the KKK. Understood. Itself. So uh, eventually he became so frustrated that he hit on his best idea by far, which was to contact the producers of the Superman radio show, the most popular radio show on the air at that time. And, uh, you know, Superman needed some villains. It was after World War II. He'd been fighting Hitler and Mussolini, you know, Mussolini <laughs> for all these years. He needed somebody else to fight. Right. And so they loved the idea of going after the KKK. And so he had infiltrated the, the biggest, most important clan uh, in the entire country, in Atlanta, where the home of the clan was. And he would, on a weekly basis, he would feed into the Superman radio show all of their passwords, the secret handshakes, all the information, the titles. You know, they had these crazy, you know, crazy titles they put, you know, like when they got together, uh, you know, in light of the, of the Pope, you know, and the, and the conclave, they'd call it a clonclave, a clonclave. Right, uh, I get when, it. Uh, when they all got together, you know. So they had, you know, the Claylift, I mean, they crazy names. Okay, so he, he, he aired this all to the Superman radio show, and they would day, night after night after night, be putting this stuff on the air, and, uh, and he saw it just eviscerate the Klan, because the people would show up at the meetings and say, how can Superman know all this stuff about the Klan? You know, there's a rat here, we've got to get the rat, and they couldn't find him. 
and the membership in the Klan began to plunge. People were afraid to go and uh, to the meetings. One, one guy said, well, you know, I come home and my kids are playing, instead of cops and robbers, they're playing Superman and the Klan, and the good guy's you know, wearing a cape, and the bad guy's got a pillowcase. What if my kids go into the closet and find my Klan robes right there? You know, and so he basically, through this incredibly creative use of information, was able to stymie the Klan. And unlike after World War Two, when uh, I'm sorry, after World War One, when the Klan grew to have millions and millions of members, uh, it basically never grew. And it's it's really uh, even under David Duke, when it had a little bit of recovery, never really was the same. All right. In other words, Professor Stephen Levitt, the lesson of the Ku Klux Klan is all about, and the and the way that that Kennedy was able to uh, throw them off kilter. It's all about information and information control. Exactly. That they, it was the, their secret, uh, their, um, their brotherhood that kept them together was all tied into this information and that, that the members had this, this information nobody else had and it, and, it, and it struck fear through everyone. And once it was revealed, how idiotic, this is so childish what was going on inside these meetings, it just... It, it got rid of the fear that people felt, and it, it made people on the outside realize how, how ridiculous All right, I uh, get, it was. I get the theory. What in the hell does this have to do with real estate agents? Well, so real estate agents, uh, one of the most valuable attributes they have as well is information, that the realtors know much more about housing markets and the value of your house than, than the seller does. And that's exactly why you hire a real estate agent, so that they can not only do the work, but also tell you how to price your house and whether to take offers or not. But the problem is real estate agents don't have the right incentives. The way we structure contracts in real estate, uh, it doesn't work out right. So let me, let me be clear about that. So when you sell your house, you typically pay as a fee to the realtor something like 6%. Okay? And half of that will go to the seller's realtor, and half of that goes to the buyer's realtor. And then half of that, again, gets split between the realtor, typically, and the company that they work for. So your actual agent, for each extra dollar that you sell your house, your agent is getting 1.5 cents on the dollar well, into their a, own pocket. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good incentive to sell it for more. Well, it's a weak incentive, though. So you think about it. So if you can sell a house for an extra $10,000, okay, you wait, say, a week or two to sell your house for $10,000 more, the homeowner would definitely want to do that trade-off. Yeah, I'll wait a week or two to get $10,000, absolutely. Now, the realtor, on the other hand, they might have to do a lot of work. They'd have to show the house a few times, maybe do an open house, pay for the advertising, and their net into their pocket from this transaction will be $150. So it's not clear that the realtors were going to want to do all that work for their client when, uh, you know, when the client would clearly want them to do it. So we go to the data, and what do we find? Okay, so it's important. Like a lot of the stuff I do, what's important is you need a way to keep score. You've got to find a way to track people. And, and let me be clear. I'm not trying to single out realtors as being dishonest or fraudulent, and not, not in the slightest. I mean, I think realtors are not good people or bad people. They're people. People respond to incentives, and when incentives uh, make you want to do something for yourself, you tend to do it for yourself rather than for somebody else. Okay, so you go to the data, and, and the key is that in you can't see if a doctor, you know, they don't perform surgery on themselves, so you can't see the kind of decisions a doctor makes. And a, and a car mechanic, you don't get to see the, the log of repairs they do on their own car, so you can't measure it. But with realtors, you've got to measure because every time a house sells, there's an indication of whether or not the agent owned a house or not, or whether it was for a client. Okay, when you go to that data, realtors are selling their houses for about 3% more than they get for their clients. Their, ho- their own houses. Their own houses. When they sell their own house, they get 3% more. But the really telling fact, I think, is that they leave their houses on the market about 10% longer. 
Okay, and that's a, it's hard to understand why a realtor's house would stay on the market longer, uh, uh, other than to me the fact that they're holding out for the better offer. Whereas when an, uh, when a, a relatively weak offer comes in for a client, they try to subtly encourage the client to take that offer. All right, tie it now to the KKK. Yeah. So the idea is that in both cases, the value of private information. There's this asymmetric information where when somebody's got the information. They want to use it to their own benefit. The clan used all the secret information to, to, to foster a brotherhood, to instill terror in people outside the organization. And the realtors use their information to try to do the same, to, to also get ahead by, uh, by keeping it private, not telling you when you really should sell your house, but instead telling you to sell your house when it's in the best interest of the realtor, but not in the best interest of the homeowner. In the same way that information is hoarded and used in a very deliberate fashion by a person who, by way of example, advertises themselves in the personal ads. Oh, absolutely. So we look at, we look at uh, an online dating site, and, uh, and what we see there is that uh, people portray uh, very distorted pictures of themselves. So almost everybody is better looking than average. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and interesting, we see with respect to race that, that people tend to say that they're uh, quite willing to date outside their race, uh, presumably to send a signal to others of how they're, they're open-minded and liberal. But in fact, when you actually see who they send emails to at this online dating site, they far overwhelmingly tend, especially women, tend to send emails to people within the same race. Uh, much more than you would given their stated intentions of, of how open-minded they are to interracial dating. It's all fascinating. It's another great lesson in Freakonomics. Professor Stephen Levitt has been our guest all week long talking about his smash book, Freakonomics. Professor, first of all, thank you. We've had five great days with you, and people love this. And I love it. I'm so glad I got turned on to your book. Are you surprised that the book has popped so quickly? Uh, we're flabbergasted. I mean, you know... We like her book. We thought it was pretty good. But, you know, we're pretty much nobodies if you think about it. You know, nobody knows who we are. It's, it's amazing that somehow people have managed to find their way to our book so quickly. Uh, and to what do you attribute that? Was it the Wall Street Journal that just made the thing go, uh, is it bloggers? I mean, what, what, how, where and how? Because you haven't been on television. Yeah, we've had no TV appearances. I mean, we got this Wall Street Journal review, which was one of the most fantastic reviews you could ever get. I mean, it was just... You, you couldn't have paid enough money to get a review like the one we got, and uh, and it just that had an amazing impla- impact. And the the other thing, you know, I think the bloggers. So we we took a strategy of just saying we'd send our book out to to bloggers and let them let them talk about it if they liked it, you know, or they hated it, you know. We had no control. We just said let's put it in the hands of people who are our chatterers and see what they say. And and, you know, by and large, they've been been pretty positive towards it, and I think that created some real momentum. For you're us. you're a 37 year old guy. You teach economics at the University of Chicago, and you received the John Bates Clark Medal, which is awarded every two years to the best American economist under 40. Yep, that's how true. Uh, and you are interested in some wacky stuff. Yeah, I, I pretty much follow my nose wherever it will take me. So whether it's sumo wrestlers or cheating teachers or crack-selling gangs or legalized abortion, I, I pretty much... You know, I, I just, uh, anything that I find interesting, I'm willing to take a crack at it. There's a great story in the book about how you're surrounded, I, I forget uh, uh, where it all takes place, by, by some highbrow uh, econom, uh, uh, economists, and they're all kind of wondering, you know, like, what's your theory, what's your big picture view? And you're in your 20s at the time? Yeah, so it was when I was trying to, to get this uh, the postdoc at the Harvard Society Fellows, this very elite intellectual club, 
and they wanted to know what my what my um, agenda was. You know, what what was my theme, my unifying theme? And it had never even occurred to me that I was supposed to have a unifying theme. And so I was just choking on my words, you know, stuttering, not sure what to say. And so somebody said, "Well, I, I think I think uh, Levitt's unifying theme is, you know, who knows, you know, such and such." And I, you know, I was eager to take at that point any unifying theme somebody would give me. So I nodded my head vigorously and, and agreed that was my theme. <laughs> Someone else just said, "No, no, you're missing the point. The real theme is and names off some other theme." And I, again, even more vigorously nodded my head and said, "You're right. I don't know what I was thinking when I said that other one was my theme because that's my theme." Uh, and finally, I mean, this was just derailing the interview. It was clear that I was going down in flames. And a guy named Robert Nozick, the great philosopher Robert Nozick, who had been an uh, intellectual hero of mine, although I'd never met him, he, he jumped in and he, and he absolutely saved the day and, and maybe turned the tide of my entire academic career. He said, he said, Steve, you know, how old are you? And I said, 26 or whatever age I was. And he said, look, he's 26. Why are we forcing a unifying theme down his throat? You know, maybe he's just going to be one of those guys who's just going to, ask questions about whatever he cares, and he'll come up with interesting answers. And, and uh, you and have. It, and it, it, it got me into this Society of Fellows, which gave me three years to pursue absolutely anything I want, and it's, uh, it really got me uh, going in, in, in the direction I've been going. And look at you now, a professor of Freakonomics. I'm the, the inaugural professor of Freakonomics, the only professor of Freakonomics. You are the man. Thank you so much for uh, being with us in Philadelphia. Thank you. It's been my great pleasure. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the Sirius XM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.